Let's read the Bible now. Um, we're going to open up our Bibles to the book of James, which is the, the new sermon series that we've been in. This is the third week of um, our sermon series, and Pastor Paul will be preaching the word for us today. Uh, the passage for today is James chapter 1, verse 12 through to 18. James chapter 1, verse 12 through to 18. I'll be reading from the ESV version. And just a reminder as we read this, that this is the Word of God. James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his preachers. Amen. Amen. Um, and congrats again to Peter, Amy. I know it's about Jesus, but so excited. It's so exciting. It's so excited to girl as well. Um, I mean, not that boys are bad. <laughs> Girls are super nice. Um, as Peter said, we're in a series through the book of James, and so if you haven't been with us the last two weeks, you can follow up on the podcast. Um, and this year, we're focusing on a year of holiness, right? And if there ever was a book that kind of really practically brings holiness uh, to the forefront of our lives, the book of James is probably that book. Now, we're in the third week of this series, and today's sermon title is, Whose Fault Is It? I keep clicking this, maybe something will happen. Okay, whose fault is it? Well, let me begin with a story. Uh, Reuben started his first week of school the other day. I talked about that. And on the first day of school, uh, my wife, I think probably like most moms, packed him like this bag. They got, you know the really big school bags that they carry? That was just all food. It was just all of this food she packed into that bag, like, a, a, like three different boxes of, of food. And as Reuben was gone, we wondered, you know, I wonder if Reuben will eat all his food. Right? I wonder if he'll eat all his food. And we're like, oh, maybe he will. Like, maybe he'll sit there and eat most of it, or if not all of it. But when he came back home, we opened up the lunchbox, and we saw that he ate none of his lunch. Like, literally none of his lunch. He ate his recess. But his lunch was exactly the same. He ate three pieces of broccoli, and that was it. The burger was still there, right? The apple was still there, the blueberry, the tiny teddies. It was just there. So we're like, well, what happened? So we sat Reuben down and we said, Reuben, why didn't you eat your lunch? Right? You have to eat your lunch. And he said to us, I really wanted to eat my lunch, but my two friends, right, Danny and Micah, they ran off to play. And so because I didn't want to be left alone, I went to play with them. And we're like, oh all right, you know, kind of understand. You don't want to be left alone. Okay, okay, fine, that's okay. The next morning, I went to drop off Reuben, and I bumped into one of his friends, Danny's mom. 
Brandon were talking, and I said, Ruben didn't eat his lunch. And she goes, yeah, Danny didn't eat his lunch either. And I'm like, yeah, I know. He ran off the play. And she goes, Danny told me I wanted to eat my lunch. You know where it's going. But Ruben and Micah ran off the play. And so I didn't want to be left alone, and so I went off to play. Like, literally the same excuse. And I was like, <laughs> No, I, I didn't follow it up. You know, obviously, someone's lying. But here's the thing. I think that's built into every single one of us. Right? Innate in each of us is this desire that when we do something wrong and we get caught, we want to point the finger. Oh, no, not me. It's because of them. They ran off to play, which is why right, I couldn't eat. Or because of this or that, right? We always want to blame someone or something else. Right? Our desire to blame someone or something else is embedded into us. You can trace it all the way back to the first man or woman who had ever lived in this world. If you look at Adam and Eve, after eating the forbidden fruit in the garden, and they brought sin into the world, God confronts them, right? Genesis chapter 3. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Look at what Adam says. Verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Right? Adam blames his wife, it's the woman, and then he blames God. And you gave it to, to me, by the way. So it's either her fault or it's your fault. But you know whose fault it's not? It ain't my fault. And then God, and then verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. You got this scene where everyone's around God and Adam's like pointing fingers and Eve's pointing fingers and everyone's blaming someone except themselves. It's like children, but this is like all of us. Instinctively, inside of us, we like to blame people, we like to, like to blame God, we blame the devil, but rarely do we own up to what we've done. And if we're honest, nothing's changed since then. Right? When you get into an argument with your friends or your spouse or your parents, we instinctively want to point out what they did wrong. It's because he, she, they, it's my boss, it's my situation, it was out of my control. Right? Everyone else does it. Right? There's always a list of excuses we give. I've got two points today. The first is that our God is blameless in all of this. Kent Hughes, uh, he's a pastor. Um, he says that when we come to blame God, we usually blame him for three things. Right? Things that are because it's ordained, circumstances, or disposition. I don't know if you've ever blamed God for something, but the first one, ordained, means God's in control, so somehow, some way, it's his fault, right? I mean, if, if you mess up, well, God's in control, so he could have stopped me. Or God had somehow not, not, not you know, stopped the temptation. Well, you know, he's in control, and he, he ordains all things, so at the end of the day, I can trace it all back to him. Sometimes we blame God like that. The second one, circumstances. We blame God for putting us in certain circumstances, and again, because he's sovereign, that's his fault. Right, God, you put that temptation in my life, and I gave in, but you put that temptation there, that's your fault. God, you allowed me to suffer, 
And it was so hard for me that I ended up turning my back on you. But God, you put too much pressure on me. You allowed that. So at the end of the day, it's your fault, right? You put me in a difficult situation. And so I had to cheat on my taxes. I had to get violent. Right? I had to neglect my spouse. Right? I couldn't go to church or commit to my devotions because I'm so busy. Right? These circumstances, God, you've allowed. And so it's your fault. Or the third reason we blame him for our disposition. This is the way that I'm made. God made me this way. God made me angry. I can't help it. Right? God made me lustful. Right? God, so if you're going to blame anyone, that's your fault, God. This is how I'm made. Right? Have you ever blamed God or used these excuses when you mess up? Right? This is the way that I'm made. It doesn't seem like it, but really you're, you're blaming God. And you're putting yourself off the hook. James says this in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. No one ever should say when we've messed up, when we've sinned, when we've disobeyed, should ever be able to say that was God. No one can ever point the finger of God, finger of God, because God never tempts us. Now let me clarify different, the difference between test and tempting. We saw in two sermons ago, God tests. But when you test someone, the motive is always for their good, for their growth, or for their benefit. Right? A father might you know, let go of their child's bike. That's a test. But the hope is not that the child will fall. Your hope is that the child would, would grow, right? learn from this experience. But when you tempt someone, the motive is always for their downfall, right? It's for their bad. And so the devil will tempt us, and his motive is that we will fail. And what James is saying, in God's sovereignty, what he's doing in your life is always for your good. Never to see you fail, always for your benefit. Right, so last week we saw in this passage that God tests us. Count it joy, or this is two weeks ago. Count it joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And so God will test you. Difficult situations may come. Temptation may come knocking on your door. He may test you for your good, but it's never for your downfall. Or it's never to tempt. And we can be sure about this, James says, for these two reasons. Number one. Because God's power. James says God cannot be tempted with evil. You know, God's very different from us. You know, when you think about our lives, we do sin. And we do sin because we're tempted to do sin. It doesn't make sense. There's two different things at play. We do sin, but then we're also tempted to do sin. Sometimes the temptation comes and we resist it and we won't sin. But sometimes temptation comes and we do sin. But there's two things at play here. But what James says is that not only does God never do the acts of sin, he never does evil, but temptation has no influence over him. He's not even tempted to do evil. The thought never even comes across his mind. He never, he never has to resist, right? Oh, I want to I see them fail. That never comes across his mind. Right? Evil has no influence over God. Sin has no influence over God. God is so pure and so holy that he has absolute control 
over evil. Right? It never influences God. And what that means is God is never unpredictable. Right? For you and me, because sin can influence us, sometimes we're happy and we're loving, but sin comes and it tempts us, and sometimes we're angry and we're hateful. We're unpredictable. Right? Even to the closest people in your life, sometimes you're good to them, Sometimes you're bad to them. That's sin's influence over you. But God is never influenced that way. Right? He is steady. The second thing, James says, is God's love. Not only can God not be tempted with evil, he himself tempts no one. God's love for you is absolute that he will never, ever do anything to see you fail. God doesn't find joy in seeing you stumble. Right? And I talked about this. God's not like us. You see, for us, sometimes we want to see people fail. Right? If we're honest. We want to see that person not get the promotion because I want the promotion. Well, I don't know. We want to see that person hurt because they hurt me. Sometimes we don't want the best for other people. But God always wants our best. Now, if you put these two things together, this is what it means. God's power and love combined means that God is always working for your good. Because he never tempts us, but that will never change. Because he has power over evil. God's goodness to you will never shift. Because the devil can whisper into his ears, but God will never succumb to it. He's not even tempted to change his mind. His goodness is steady. His will for you will never change. Right? Does that make sense? We know that God is always, always working for our good. And so it means that no matter what you're going through, no matter how how hard it feels, no matter how painful it is, you can be certain, if you believe in the scriptures, God is working for my good. And he's not having a bad day. He didn't wake up on the wrong side of the bed like we do. He's never tempted to change his mind. He's always working for your good. James says this in verse 16 to 17. Don't be deceived. My beloved brothers, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Every good gift is from God. Everything good is from God. Everything from God is good. And that does not change, he says. There is no variation. God is good to you all the time. All the time. Amen? Is good to you. Have you ever blamed God for the things that you've done wrong in your life? God, you could have stopped it, but I gave into that temptation. God, you made my life so hard. I had no other you know, choice. Da, 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 da. At the end of the day, none of us are able to say that. None of us can point our finger to God. That wasn't God's intention for you. Even though it was hard. Even though it was painful, God's intention for you through that was for your good, for you to grow, for you to know him more closely, for you to find your rest and peace in him. God's intention is always for your good. The second point, I've got two points today, is us. Whose fault is it then when we mess up? When life gets hard and I don't endure, 
I give up on my faith. I turn my back on God. Whose fault is it? Whose fault is it when temptation comes and I give into that temptation? Right? Whose fault is it? Kent Hughes, he tells a story of a young woman. A young woman who came to Christ uh, through a marvelous way. She came to Christ because her marriage was struggling. She met Jesus and her life was radically changed. Right? She became a new person, he says. And yet, her husband never became a Christian. And through the years, the marriage continued to struggle. And after years of marriage problems, this woman, she went to find help from a counselor. But rather than finding help, she was seduced. And with extravagant sympathy and compliments and suggestive comments, the relationship ended up leading to sin. And this woman eventually came to Kent Hughes and his wife. Now, let me ask you, whose fault is this sin? Surprisingly, when she came to Kent Hughes, she blamed God. She said, God allowed this stuff to happen. The messiness of it all, it's all God's fault. But, you know, just as easily, she could have blamed her husband. He didn't love me enough. He rejected my faith. He neglected our marriage. And I'm sure some of that could be true. Definitely, she could have blamed the counselor. Abuse of power. But I trusted him. He shouldn't have done the things he did. Yes. But if you look at what James says, he would redirect that woman's focus and the blame somewhere else. Verse 14. He says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. What James is saying is that every failure, to a certain degree, can be traced back to you, to your own heart. Let me say it another way. No matter what's going on around you, no matter how hard life is, no matter how strong of a temptation is before you, if inside of you, you can resist sin, you will not fail God. Imagine a person who is wrongly accused for things they never did, beaten up, called names, and killed for something they never did, and yet through it all, never disobey God, never curse other people. That's exactly what our Lord Jesus Christ did. There was testing, it was difficult, there was temptation, and yet through it all, he never sinned. He never failed God. That's possible, regardless of what's going on around you, if your heart is committed to God. I want to say three things here. Number one, we need to own our sin. You know, we like to blame, point fingers. It's because he, she, they, the circumstances, it's because of God. What James is saying here is that you sinned, not because of something outside of you, but because of something inside of you. The people, the circumstances, the temptation merely brought out the desire to sin that was in here. You know when the car cuts you across the road and you get really angry? And you're like, whoa, where did that come from? It didn't come from them. It was inside here. And that circumstance merely exposed what was going on. 
Now, I want to clarify here. I'm not saying the husband is innocent in that story. I'm not saying the counselor is innocent. I'm not saying that the woman is primarily responsible. Right? I'm not saying that. For sure, right, the counselor made, he's probably primarily responsible in this. He abused his power, yes. And I'm sure the husband could have done a better job, perhaps. But what James is saying here is rather than each person in that circumstances pointing their finger, each person could and should look inside of themselves and say, there was something in me that made me contribute to my failure in this whole scenario. The husband can look inside of himself and say, I neglected my marriage, but I did this or that, and maybe there's something that he could have learned. The counselor definitely looks inside of himself, and there was lust, insecurity, I don't know. But even the woman in that circumstance, right, which we don't wish for anybody, when the temptation is before her, there was still maybe a small part inside of her that I wanted to give in. Maybe it was lust, insecurity, etc. I'm not saying she's primarily responsible. But at the end of it all, maybe through many years, she would have to look inside. Because maybe there was something inside of her that made her give in to the situation. That is what James would say. We are tempted when we're lured and enticed by our own desire. No matter what's going on outside of us, if we can be strong and resist what's going on in our hearts, then we can say no. And so we need to own our part in the messiness of our lives. Unless we own our responsibility, we'll never change. You can go through marriage constantly blaming your spouse. It's your fault. It's because you have these flaws. You never change. When the reality is each person in that marriage can look inside and see certain things that they could change. Am I angry? Am I impatient? Am I just adding fuel to the fire? Maybe they're more responsible, but it doesn't matter. There's parts that you are responsible for. When you look at your character flaws, you need to own your character flaws or else you'll never change. We can always blame our boss and our work colleagues, our friends when relationships break down. But the reality is there's probably something that you can find in yourself that made you contribute to the failure. When we go through dry seasons, we love to blame God. We love to blame church. Man, life was so hard. For the last six months, my faith declined. Church wasn't there for me. And maybe some of that could be true, but maybe you just gave up too quickly. Maybe you didn't persevere. And maybe there's something inside of you that turned to sin too quickly, easily, and followed the wrong path. We need to own our sin. Second, we need to turn from our sin. We need to repent We need to see our sin, own up to it, then turn away, repent, and commit to never do that sin again. And this is important because look at what James says in verse 15. He says, the desire, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin, fully grown, it will bring forth death. There's desire in me. When I give into it, I sin. But if I keep on sinning, he says, it's going to lead to death. Now, you contrast this with what James said in verse 12, 
Verse 12 is like a summary of what he's talked about in the verses, verse 1 to 11, right? The last two sermons. James says, Blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. If you say steadfast, he says, in the tests and temptations, at the end of that road, life. At the end of the road with desire and sin is death, but at the end of being steadfast in your faith, there is life. And the image that James puts before us is that you and I were going down a road, and every time life gets hard, every time there's a temptation before us, the road splits. And you have a choice to make. Will I go follow my internal sinful desires and sin? Or will I remain steadfast in my faith? But strong in what I know honors God. And you have a choice to make. And if you keep going down this road, where you give in to your desires and sin, keep going down towards sin, at the end of that road is death. At the end of obedient faithfulness and steadfastness. That's the road with life. And it doesn't matter what you confess, what you say about your faith in Jesus. It doesn't matter about your attendance at church. If you keep going down the road where you give in to your sin, it's going to lead to death, regardless of what you say about your faith. And I want to talk about this in two or three weeks. But if we keep going down that road, it will lead to death. And so this is serious, the choices that we're making when temptation and tests come. The third thing is we need to run to God. We own our sin, we turn from sin, and then we run to God. I once heard it said that God doesn't need us, but he wants us. We need God, but we don't want him. God doesn't need us but wants us, whereas we need God, but we don't want him. You know, we need God. You know, we tend to look outside of ourselves to blame for our failures, and then we look inside of ourselves to find the solution. But James is saying you look inside of yourselves to find the blame for your failures. And if the problem was in here, well, then my solution can't be here. It's got to be out there somewhere. Right? If my problem is my sinful desires, I, I can't win with just myself. Right? If you get into a fight with yourself, who's going to lose? Right? You will lose. Right? You will always lose against yourself. I don't know. You will always lose against yourself. You need help from God. Right? We need to run to Him. We run to God in the moments of temptation. Right, when there is you know, lust rearing up, anger swelling up, selfishness is coming about, when doubt is clouding your mind, we run to God because we need his supernatural health in that, help in that moment. We need his timely strength to resist. Because God, the temptation's coming from within. I need you to help me. We run to God in our daily lives so that he would do an internal heart transformation It's in here, and I can't change myself. I need the power of the Spirit to be at work in me. To increase my joy and satisfaction in Jesus Christ, and for Him to dull the desires for things that are not of Him. And we need God to do that work. And we run to God 
when we mess up. Because we will mess up. And we run to God when we fail the, fail the test. And we give in to the temptation. And we weren't as steadfast as we should have been. And we run to God knowing that he is good. And that goodness never changes. Knowing that he will welcome you, forgive you, and get you back up to keep fighting the good fight of faith another day. We need God. No matter what's going on in your life, none of us can point our finger at God. God is always working for our good. I don't know if you heard that thing where you point, like, how do you say it? When you're pointing at something or someone, if you look at your hand, you're really pointing to yourself. Like, do you know what I mean? Point, point at me. If you look at your hand, there's three fingers pointing back to you. <laughs> when we point at God, right, look at your finger, the blame is on me. Not God, me. Something inside of me made me turn away, made me give in to sin. Something inside of me. Let me tell you a story about Martin and Gracia Burnham. You may have heard this story. It's a bit of a long one. But Martin and Gracia Burnham were married and they were a missionary couple. They'd served in the Philippines for 17 years, uh, since 1986. And on the 18th year, it was their 18th wedding anniversary, they said, you know what, uh, we're going to go to a hotel for one night. Right? Don't you think they deserve one night off after serving God as missionaries for 17 years? One night, we're going to go have a break. So they went to a hotel for one night. And that morning... There was a pounding on their door. Three men barged in with M16s and dragged them out of their bed. And they were taken hostage, along with 20 other people at that hotel. And in that one day, their life was changed. For the next 376 days, they were dragged through the jungle as hostages by terrorists. Treated like animals, drinking dirty water, sleeping on the dirt floor of the jungle, threatened that they're going to be killed on a daily basis. In that span of a year, some people were set free because their ransoms were paid. Some people were beheaded. Some people died. I want you to imagine what you would do in that scenario. You've sacrificed so much for God. You've committed to be a missionary. 16 years Right, so 17 years, and you just take one, one night break, and then you're taken hostage. So easy to sin in your heart against God. So easy to abandon your faith, to curse God and man, to be filled with anger and hatred, and have murderous thoughts. It's God, it's your fault, it's their fault, the situation. What would you do? During their year-long captivity, Martin and Gracia remained steadfast in their faith, prayerful, explaining the gospel to their captors, not giving up on their faith, right? So incredible. In a recent interview, just a few weeks ago, Gracia, she said, she said this, she recounts a moment during their captivity, in the middle of their captivity, she says, that day as I sat there cross-legged on the ground, I realized that in every situation, If you look, there is good. Because God is there in your situation and he is good. 
No matter how hopeless things seem for you, God can redeem that situation and he can give you peace in the midst of it. God has not abandoned you in your hard times. In fact, God has given us great and precious promises. In the midst of being a hostage and perhaps going to lose your life, she remembers God is good, always working for our good. But the story doesn't end there. Because on the morning of June the 7th, 2002, Ramadan, he turns to his wife and he says, the Bible says to serve the Lord with gladness. Let's go out all the way. Let's serve him all the way with gladness. This is a year into their captivity. Let's serve God with gladness. That's incredible. The couple prayed together. They recited Bible passages to another. They sang songs together. And then at about noon that day, gunshots rang through the jungle. And at the sound of the first gunshot, Martin and Gracia, they rolled out of their hammocks down a hill. The Philippine army had come to rescue them. After a year, after a whole year of being hostage, not knowing what's going to happen with your life, they were going to be free. They rolled down the hill, and as they came to the end, Gracia looked down at her leg and saw immediately that she had been shot in the leg. And then she turned to her husband, Martin, and she saw that he had been shot in the chest. And by the time the gunfire stopped, her husband was dead. What would you do now? You've committed your life to God to be a missionary, and then you get taken hostage, but you remain steadfast through it all. You remain steadfast for a whole year, and just at the brink of being set free, your husband dies. Again, so many reasons to sin and to blame God and your captors and your circumstances. Upon arriving at Kansas City Airport, Gracia Burnham, she made a statement. And in her statement, she said this, we want everyone to know that God. How would you finish that sentence? We want everyone to know that God, God's God's horrible. God's to blame. God's not real. God is evil. God made a mess of my life. This is what she said. We want everyone to know that God was good to us every single day of our captivity. This is what it looks like to be steadfast in faith and know that God is good all the time. Gracia had an unwavering confidence in God's goodness and in God's purposes for her life. And I don't know the extent of God's purposes through her pain, and I don't know if she knows. But what I know is that the fact that God was good comforted her during and after all that she went through. What I know is that as she remained steadfast, her faith and trust and relationship with God only grew through all the difficulties she went through. What I know is that Martin lived, verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. I am sure, as sure as I could be on earth, that Martin has received the crown of life. What I know is that the impact that God has had through Gracia and her testimony and her faith has been tremendous, impacting thousands, if not tens of thousands of Christians and non-Christians around the world. In fact, four of the the, the terrorists who took her hostage came to know Jesus Christ because of a steadfast testimony of God's goodness. 
What I know is that her youngest son studied at Bible college. Her oldest son became a missionary pilot, just like his dad. And her daughter married a new tribe's missionary, just like she did when she married Martin. And all of them are making an impact for the kingdom. And I'm pretty sure they wouldn't be where they are if she gave up on her faith on God. What I know is that this is the kind of steadfastness, the kind of conviction that we are meant to have. No matter what happens in our lives, not blaming God and not sinning, but counting a joy in trials and pushing forward by the strength of God. I want to invite us to pray. Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes and let's pray. I don't know what kind of stuff you're going through in life right now. But no matter how hard it feels and no matter what kind of temptations come our way, we have no right to blame God. James says, God is always working for your good. He has good purposes and he has purpose in your pain. And though you may not see it, God wants to strengthen your resolve. He wants to teach you things about you and God. He wants to deepen your relationship with him. He wants to make his promises sweet and come alive to you in those moments. And as we go through this journey of life, we will have hundreds, thousands of decisions to make at every fork in the road. Will I give in to the desire inside of me to sin, to chase my own life and my kingdom, to give in to lust and temptation, to chase after money, to be full of hate and anger, to be greedy, or through every trial and test will I remain steadfast, run to God, find strength, Say no to the things of the enemy. Say no to the temptations that come from within and say yes to God. The Christian goes down that path. Not always, not perfectly, but we keep fighting for it because we know that at the end of it, there is a crown of life. I want us to commit ourselves to walk down that path, that path that leads to life, the path that trusts in God, the path that fights to be steadfast, The path that says, God, my holiness matters most, more than my happiness. The path that says no to the enemy and no to sin. Would you commit yourself to that path of holiness today? And if you failed this week, if you've sinned or disobeyed God, if you've been distracted, don't blame other things. Don't blame the busyness of life or circumstances. Run back to God, repent and commit again to him. Let's spend a bit of time in prayer, church. Let's pray.